Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. This is episode number 63 of the Tart Talk series, and this is a fun conversation. Joining us is Todd Clark, and we go in a lot of different directions in this podcast. We talk about sand greens, yes, sand greens, designing courses for multiple generations, and we also get some college football talk in here. But before we get going with Todd, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting the podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're, we're glad they're on board, and we're glad that Todd was able to take some time to join us. Well, Todd, thanks for joining us. It's awesome having you on the podcast, and we're recording this episode in late September, which Almost everybody in the golf industry is well aware of the fact that it's college football season. Before we get into your work as a golf course architect, you're a former college football father. Explain what that experience was like for you. Uh, well, thanks for asking. It is, it is football season, and uh, my Kansas State Wildcats finally made the top uh, top 25. So uh, it's fun, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because my son played for uh, Bill Snyder from uh, – 2013 to 2017 and uh you know both my wife and i we both went to k-state and and i was there in school in 89 when bill snyder showed up and then to have your son go back and play for you know the legend that kind of put k-state on the map when it comes to football you know that's that, that's just it's an awesome experience it was uh it was tough, and, you know, playing for Coach Schneider, you know, he has the walk-on program. My son walked on uh, for two years and then earned a scholarship and played, and, you know, it was a, it was a great time. And, uh, you know, the experiences, you know, I don't know if you – I mean, as a parent, you have the roller coaster of emotions. You go from, you know, you want your kid to get into the game and play, and then all you're – then as he's playing, all you're hoping for is the fact that he stays healthy and then he doesn't mess up and miss a big play and they score a touchdown or something like that. He played defensive end. So, you know, they're always in the fire when they're on the defensive line and, and going at it. So it, it was fun. It was some great memories. I can tell you now that he's done, Guy, the, the games are a lot more enjoyable because we can sit back as fans and, and watch it. And we still know some of the players uh, – that played with my son Davis at the time. So they're just they're wrapping up because of the COVID year. They all got one more year. But it, it was awesome. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I think my son will be, it'll be something that I think he appreciates and looks back and just say, what a chapter in his life. I mean, it takes five years out. And people always ask, is it, how hard is it? It's a full-time job. And, you know, now with the name, image, and likeness now, these kids are, you know, college sports can change forever, but at the time, you know, they were just grinding out and just trying to get a scholarship and and play some football, and it, it was it was a great experience. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, with your son being a uh, former defensive lineman, does he play golf? And how far does he hit the ball if he does play golf? He does play golf. That's you know what's funny. So he's uh, he's probably today he's about six three, two forty five, two fifty. He played about. You know, 265. Coach Schneider didn't want me to get too big because it was all about speed. And when we were young, you know, we were around, he was around golf courses all the time because of, of what I do and, and everybody in the family that plays golf. And he, he just didn't have that interest as a kid. He was more interested in going out and playing. Uh, he played hockey growing up, so he loved to hit people when he played hockey. And then he got into baseball. So golf was just too slow. And then as he got into college and he, was trying to figure out, hey, what can we do on the weekends? We have a little time in the off season. 
he really started getting into golf. And now that he's out, he has the golf bug. He plays it. Uh, he play. We play all the time together, and he hits it a long ways. He can hit his drive, you know, if they're 280 to 300. And uh, he has a good short game because of his hockey skills and all that. The eye-hand coordination is very good. What was fun is we were playing here probably about three or four weeks ago out at Prairie Highlands uh, Golf Club in Kansas City here. Of course, we did, you know, 20 years ago. And the ninth hole is uh, it's a par five. It's about 535 yards. And the green kind of wraps around. It's all carried. And he had, he knocked it in two for an albatross. He had to drive about 270, and then he hit a three wood over the lake. And um, it took like two or three hops, went right in the hole. And I was with my brother, and we were all looking at it, and we were just going, that was unbelievable. And then we went up there, and we, we couldn't believe one in the hole. So he was pretty excited. I caught it on video and sent it out to everybody. And, you know, an albatross is, I mean, those are harder. I've had two hole-in-ones, and then to watch him get a uh, – an albatross, and I've seen my dad had a hole in one, so it was a it was a good time. Just like the hole was designed to be played, right, Todd? Well, exactly, <laughs> yeah. So you went, you you don't know how many times. Every time we play golf, we we like to play on Tuesday nights. My nephew comes out and plays with my uh, business partner Brent Hugo, and that's the four of us. So it's the young guys against the old guys, and. Uh, They've been taking a lot of money from us, so we keep pushing them back. They're on the back tees, and then we keep trying to change the games up. And uh, I think every time that he plays and goes for that hole, he's always going for it. So he has put several balls into the lake, or he's put them over the green. And and now now that he's hit the albatross, he just thinks automatically he's on it too every time. So uh, he's had plenty of eagles and things like that, but he's also had some several sevens and eights on that hole. So it's uh, – that's what makes golf fun. You never know what you're going to get when you go out and play. Okay, now onto your background, Todd. What What do you think when somebody says the uh, the word sand greens? Sand greens. Wow. Well, you know, being from Kansas, guy, I don't know. I don't know how many sand greens you, golf courses you've been on, but you know, back in the day, sand greens in Kansas was you know there, there were a lot of them. There's probably a handful left today. You know, sand greens one of those things that was you know been around forever and it's, it's just an affordable way to play golf and um, we had a sand green golf course when we were kids we were Brent Hugo my partner were cousins and uh, his family and my family my dad was a uh, he was a club pro at Indian Hills Country Club here in Kansas City so golf has, has been in the family and then Brent's father uh, Don Hugo he went to uh, Marquette on an Evans scholarship so yeah, you know, so you have this golf background, and, and my they came up, me with my uncle, they came up with a, you know, like the rubber grips that they put out. This had to be in the, in the 70s and early 80s, and they put out in Golf Digest, and they made all kinds of money, and they thought this was, this was great. And they went and they bought a nine-hole sand green golf course in Bonner Springs here. And uh, so my experience with sand greens was like, okay, we got to, I was interested in the maintenance side of it. I was interested in, hey, how do you take care of it? How do you run the gang mowers? And um, and how do you take care of these greens? You know, how do you oil them? How do you have brakes? And it was interesting because I, I grew up playing on a, uh, the Overland Park golf course. It's called Sykes Lady here. We did all the junior tournaments, so it was bent grass greens and all that. And then we ended up owning a nine-hole sand green golf course. And it was uh, – 
it was quite an experience. We were we were the family was the maintenance crew. I think our family had Thursday nights, so we would go out on Thursday nights, and you'd have to go out and work as a family. So you ran. We had a driving range. We had to go pick up balls by hand. We'd have to go out and take care of the greens or mow. And they, it was interesting. It was it, it's a it's a pure form of golf. Um, you know, the sand greens are small. They're only probably a thousand square feet or fifteen hundred maybe. And then you'd always you know roll it out on your line, and then you'd start in the middle and rake it out. But uh, that was really my first introduction into kind of like golf and maintenance. Um, and then after that, I ended up caddying at Milburn and, and saw what a country club was really like in the golf course. And uh, But, yeah, sand greens are fun. They're still out there. What's interesting is my son just went out. He got invited to go out to a tournament with a bunch of alumni of the K-State football team. And they did a little western swing out in uh, western Kansas. It was a hunting and golf thing. And he was like, okay, I'm ready to go play golf. And he pulls up and in the golf course. And basically, it was in the prairie, and it was the sand green golf course. And he had no idea. He had no idea there was an, even a sand green golf course exists. So he said, that was different. I said, yeah, well, we used to have one. So uh, so that's, that's what I think of when I think of sand green golf courses. A lot of rakes and rollers and oil. How cool would it be to design one in 2021, a sand green golf course? That would be interesting because today you would probably do it. You would probably do it different. We'd probably put a lot of movement into it, and then we'd really pack it, and we'd figure out how to, I don't know, spray it with better Billy Bunker and have it firm or something, and and or do something so you didn't have to rake it, roll it all the time, but you'd still have to be able to receive the shots. It would be, it would be interesting. I mean, when you stop and think about it, you know, you start looking at the cost of an irrigation head and and all the pipe and all that stuff, and you know, you don't need any of that today to do a sand green golf course. You can just let it be. So uh, I, I haven't really thought about that one. I'm glad you presented that to me, guy, like that. That would It would be different, that's for sure. Given your background, were you going to go the golf route all along with your career, or was there ever thoughts about doing something else? And the truth is I always I would go spend my summers at my, on my grandfather's farm in South Dakota, and I always thought about being a farmer. I wanted to be outside, and I'd work up there every, you know, from junior high, middle school, uh, all the way through high school. I'd go up there and work in the summertime, and he offered me the farm to come up there. And at the time, I was like, okay, this would be fun. But then you start getting older, you start realizing what a tough lifestyle. I mean, the farmers work extremely hard, and it's a major risk every year farming. And then I realized I wanted to do something outside, and I liked I didn't want to be in an office, and I, I liked the design uh, aspect of it. When I was in high school, you know, we had a, a shop teacher that, that also did drafting and, and told us, taught us how to start doing, like, plans for homes. So I got intrigued with the design side when I was in high school. And then uh, so I went to college. I went in and signed up uh, at K-State in 85 in Ag Econ because I was thinking I was going to follow that Ag background. And then the first semester, I switched over to architecture, knowing that I wanted to do something with landscape architecture. And then I ended up turning into a six-year program. I think my father was about ready to kill me when he, I told him I was going to be there six years. And um, and that's how I kind of started going down the path. There was a professor there, Chip Winslow. He, he taught a class on, on golf course design. I don't know if you know the history. There's a lot of guys in the society today that have come from Kansas State University, um, you know, Phil Smith, Gary Landers, 
there's a, quite a list of them that did that, that went to Kansas State, and uh, so they would come back and talk to us. And I think Gary Lynn came back and talked to us. I think I started getting intrigued with the idea of, hey, you have this art and land, and you have construction. And that was, that was a nice fit. That's what I thought was kind of neat. And then when I was there doing it, uh, a guy named Dick Nugent came and put up a sign-up sheet. Uh, he was looking for people full-time, and then he also was looking for an internship. And uh, and then I went and signed up for it, and uh, he saw my background. He, he knew I knew construction. He knew I caddied when I was in, in high school. And uh, he knew a little bit. Then we started talking, and he made me an offer to go to Chicago. And, uh, and that was in the summer of 90, and, and that changed the whole my whole career path and actually the course of my life because I've been doing it ever since. I've been doing it for over 30 years now just because of that one little piece of paper I signed up on and, and went and uh, talked to Dick Nugent, and that, that really did change the direction of what I was doing. What type of options were there for somebody entering the, the business in 1990, and would you consider golf course architecture a growing business at that time, and how does it compare to somebody entering the business now? In the summer when I went up there, uh, what was interesting, Dick, you know, Dick was, you know, his business was very good at the time. He had probably five or six different architects and, and guys that are still in the golf business today. Um, he, Pat Carnick is president of the Wadsworth Golf Construction Company. He was a designer there at the time with me. Uh, Eric Wadsworth, also the son of Brent Wadsworth, he was there on the construction side. And uh, there are a couple other guys working there with uh, with us. And so it was fun. I mean, the golf was booming. Dick had work. I think he at the time he'd be working on three or four new different new golf course projects. And um, it was exciting. I mean, you were you were you were busy. You were doing drawings. You know, we were doing all the drawings on ink or with mylar and ink and just hand drawn. And, and Dick would just he would just turn you loose on projects. You know, today, trying to get in as a golf course architect, um, you know, I get resumes all the time, people sending me, and, you know, the market's different. You don't really have, you know, I'm a small firm. It's my partner and I, Brent Hugo and I, so there's two of us. You know, you don't have the large firms today that are bringing people in to mentor them, to show them how to, you know, do the design, how to figure out the grading, and really teach them, you um, everything that you need to know about designing a golf course. So that, I think that's the biggest difference today. You know, a lot of the architects are coming in today are coming from the construction side, you know, the, the shaping, the construction background. Where, you know, I'm from the camp of, you know, we produce drawings and try to quantify things and, and work off, you know, work off the paper from that standpoint. What did you learn from Dick Nugent and how under, underappreciated is he? We don't hear a lot about him. Unfortunately, it is kind of sad. I mean, Dick was, I don't know if you, if you go back and look at it, of all the architects that have worked for him, you know, Bob Lohman, um, he worked for him. Jeff Breyer worked for him. Um, you know, Dick did several, several golf courses up in the Midwest, Chicago area, you know, since he was from there. And um, what was great about Dick was the fact that he brought you in and, and he gave you that, uh, the rope to go out and to, to kind of try to go out and design something. And then he can, he could reel you back in real quick. I know, you know, a couple of the big projects I did with Dick at the time was uh, Harborside international and, um, 
down on the south side of Chicago. It's a 36-hole facility and also Green Bay Country Club up in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Those were some of the first projects I did with them um, after I got it, went up there full-time. And, and I remember Dick would take you, and, and we would go through, and he'd have you go through and figure out the concepts, the writing plans. Then we would go into his conference room, and you would pin up all your design concepts on trash paper. You would go through, you'd work it up. You would write out your notes, and then he would go through and redline every hole. You would have to explain to him what you were trying to do with the hole. And he would teach you so many things about, hey, you don't want to, you know, yes, that makes sense to put the bunkers over here, but they don't work because you have the cart paths on that side, and they'll cut off the access, and then you'll create a wear pattern or you have drainage of water coming on. So you would go back, you would go through that whole process, and then after you're doing the initial design of the holes, you go back and do the same thing with green details. You would go back, and we would do them at 30 scale, and, and he would critique it. You would get it right down to a tenth of a, you know, an inch on elevation and really make it work. So, I mean, that's, that's where I got my background is was going through and spending that time and trying to figure things out on paper with Dick and have him critique it. And it was uh, it was it was a great experience, and that that is I think that's how I learned it today. And then you know I spent time working with Craig Schreiner, and I think what I learned by working with Craig was uh, you know Craig was good at selling, and he could go in and he could really you know get the membership excited and uh, of how, why to do a renovation, why we need to do that. So you know I had a good blend of everything uh, for to establish myself as an architect. Todd, when did you establish your own firm, and what were some of the obstacles you had to overcome to start the business? I went to work for Dick in 1990, and you know, he, he made a deal, and I tell those people a lot of times. And he goes, hey, I'm going to make you an offer starting out at 28000 and I'm going to give you $100 a week your senior year, and uh, then you're gonna, the only thing you have to do is graduate. And you know, knowing that you have that $100 a week, it was kind of hard. It was easy to skip classes and not really be focused. So I did, I did accomplish that. I graduated and got married and then uh, went up there to work for him until the summer of 94. And then uh, we were starting our family then, and we moved back to Kansas City because my, my wife Lisa's from Kansas City, and we wanted to be in Kansas City. And then in 94, the fall of 94, I hooked up with Craig Schreiner, and we worked together as a, kind of like as a partnership. We, I was basically a subcontractor for Craig, and we worked together for about 10 years on a handshake. And uh, we did all kinds of work throughout the Midwest, uh, both new courses and renovation. And uh, so really in 94, I set up the company because we ran everything through my father's company, Clark Enterprises. That's where the CE comes from and CE Golf Design. So... I had a, a company set up because the way we worked with Craig is is we ran his office and, you know, he would cut us a check every month. So all the employees were ran through our company. And it was it worked out well. It was a good relationship with Craig because then he had the freedom if he ever wanted to leave. He could. I had the freedom to leave if I needed to. But we, we had a good run for 10 years. So I kind of set it up, so I started having, you know, all my insurance and professional liability. And then when we split in 2003, it was easy to make a transition and, and hang my own shingle and go right into it. And so I kept the CE Golf Design. Uh, my brother and sister, they both have companies that are 
that have the CE, like CE water management, CE distribution. And we kind of kept that as like a legacy to my dad, just because he started the Clark Enterprises and he gave us an opportunity to, you know, go out and build our own business. So that's how I got started. And that's how we use the name CE Golf Design is just a more of a, a little bit of a legacy to my father. And, and, uh, and that's how we got it going. So, um, and we've been, you know, our businesses, guys based upon uh, relationships. I mean, we've had some, you know, a lot of clients uh, stayed with me when Craig and I split. And, you know, like one club up in Minneapolis, Mendota Heights, a Mendota Country Club, you know, I've been working up there since uh, probably 95. So it's, it's been a long time. I've had the same Greens chairman the entire time. Uh, we're on the second superintendent because the other one, Bob McKinney, retired. And now we have Tom Schmidt up there. So, that's how, that's how I got started, and that's how we've been doing it ever since. Has building relationships become easier or harder the longer you've had the business? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I, mm-hmm. You know, the relationship side of it is something you have to do. Um, you know, we have, we've been very fortunate. I think, you know, I'm probably not the best at going out and, and trying to push my name and everything where we try to build, we try to give the clubs and our clients uh, what they're looking for. Um, so I really like the collaboration process. I like to get the superintendent or the committee or whoever's really in charge. I like to get them in that process. So that helps build that relationship side. And, you know, today, you know, we, you know, there's, as you know, there's a lot of clubs and there's a lot of egos in, in the golf course world. And uh, you just have to work those relationships. And you have to be open-minded to uh, build those relationships. And um, I think that's what I've done a good job of, is just trying to sit there and, and really listen to what they want. And then when we're done, you know, I don't want to leave a thumbprint or a certain style uh, on that golf course. I want it to fit like it's been there. You know, some of the work, we do a lot of work in Kansas City and throughout the Midwest, and I always want to have a different look and style so that people don't say, oh, that's a Todd Clark golf course, or, oh, look, he used the same bunkers from, you know, Indian Hills Country Club over, you know, which is a Tilly and Half design over to Milburn, which is a Langford design. So we want to, we want to create a different look and look like it's been there for 100 years. So... But it takes it takes time to build those relationships, and you got to spend time to get to know the superintendents. Our the superintendents are still today are the conduit for us into the clubs or the facilities. You need to get to know them. You need to go and listen to them and try to figure out how to solve their problems and how to make them successful. Because if you can help design something that gives them a better opportunity to, to produce better playing surfaces and and turf grass from an agronomic standpoint, then guess what? They're going to be successful and and the membership will be happy. That leads me to a question I've had on my mind for a while now. How influential is a golf course superintendent in pushing a club towards a renovation? Oh, he's huge. He's he's probably the driving factor. Um, You know, if the superintendent, and I'll use Jeff White as an example at Indian Hills, uh, you know, we've been working with Jeff at different facilities over the years, and and Jeff is he's he's always trying to push to say, hey, we need to keep getting better. 
Uh, we need to be upgrading the irrigation system. We need to be upgrading the bunkers. You know, we just did a big project over there at Indian Hills Country Club this this last winter where we we went in and we reconnoitred some of the fairways. We expanded the lakes. We built rebuilt uh, walls, and so we have cascading waterfalls coming down on the seventh hole. And uh, it was a big project, and, and all that is because what was there was falling apart. So we had developed the master plan, and Jeff was good at just keep pushing the master plan. Let's keep let's keep chipping away at it. You know, we were, he was building tees in house. And then we'd bring in contractors to do more of the specialty stuff when it got to bunkers or expanding the lake. So at all of our facilities, I think it, I think we get that initial call from the superintendent because, you know, with what we're doing in, in you know, the American Society of Golf Course Architects at the golf course industry shows, we're trying to let people know that this is how you get projects done. You need to inform the membership of what's going on. You know, we're getting ready to start another project up in Omaha, the field club of Omaha. You know, it's a, it's a club that's on about 80 acres, 88 acres. It's been around a long time. They sold off some property. You know, we did a master plan here back in 17, 18, and now we're finally going into the first phase of uh, moving it forward. And, you know, it's a blue-collar club that has a lot of tradition, but they had some strong people. And Nick, the superintendent up there, you know, they kept pushing, like, we need to make these improvements. Um, we need to take and fix some greens that are too small, uh, fix some drainage problems, and ultimately, you know, get the golf course better. So that that's how we get in with the, most of the golf courses. Um, so that's I still think they're the conduit. We do have some clients uh, that we work through that have owners that have multiple golf courses. And we've done renovations for them, so they, they constantly are calling us back and saying, okay, let's go on to the next golf course, let's improve that. So we do have a lot of those relationships too, but I think for the most part today it's, it, it starts with the superintendent. And superintendents can sometimes be timid, right? It's not their money that is being spent on these projects. So sometimes they have maybe some reservations about going to a board or an owner or a GM and asking for the, the, the capital improvement money. Is that where you come in, Todd, as a golf course architect? Are you able to say the things and push for the things that maybe superintendents are sometimes a little bit too timid to ask for? Well, that, that, that's our role. So mm-hmm. we, when we go in with the club, is our role is as a golf course architect, I think that's probably the primary thing that we need to do, is once we establish the vision or the plan or the direction, whatever we need to do, it doesn't matter if it's a T renovation or a, a bunker renovation. Here just in the last month, we've got the call. We've had several calls, but we're getting ready to start two more master plans, um, one in Missouri and one down in Arkansas. And they're clubs that are they're doing well, and now all of a sudden they have extra money, and they're going, help us out. Where do we need to go? And by doing the master plan, I think our thing is we have to set a realistic budget of what these things cost. Because, you know, everybody today, they'll throw out a number, hey, what is, you know, what is the better building bunker system cost and all this? And everybody say, oh, it's around, you know, $9 if you do that, you use a nice sand, a square foot. Well, then what everybody forgets is the shaping, the sodding, the drainage outside the bunker. And then all of a sudden, 
they get the, this concept that oh, it's only going to cost two to three hundred thousand dollars to do your bunkers. In reality, it's going to cost you four to five hundred thousand dollars because of everything outside the bunker, all the irrigation you have to move or the sides you have to put down. So that's where we come into play and say, okay, we're bidding jobs all the time and negotiating projects. And then what we do is put a realistic number to whatever that scope is. And then from there, that allows the club or, uh, you know, if it's a city-owned course or privately owned, that allows them to then start planning and moving forward so they can really anticipate what the project's going to cost. Because every meeting I go into, everybody already has an idea of, like, how much it's going to cost. And then we have to deliver the news and say, hey, this is the market price today. Today, guy, contractors are busy. I mean, you know, we're working – we're working with Landscapes Unlimited. We've worked with Robert Fleetwood. We're working with the Wadsworth Group. We're working with uh, Mamba Sports Construction here in town, Veridity uh, Construction, another local contractor. Guess what? Everybody's booking work for next year. So if somebody's calling me today saying, hey, we want to do this, I'm, I'm kind of like getting in line because everybody is busy. You know, then we had the slow times. You know, a lot of the golf course construction got small. Now, times are good. COVID has been great for golf because the fact that everybody's out playing and, you know, clubs and facilities and municipalities are spending money. They're reinvesting back in their product. And um, so I think that's what, we, that's what we bring to the table, I think, more than anything is we can quantify everything and then we can tell them what a realistic budget number is so they can go and, and get the capital funds to do that, to do those improvements. What type of opportunities are you currently receiving? And because of that spark in golf interest, that spike in golf interest, are you a little more selective now than you were a few years ago? You know, that, that's interesting. Mm. Yes, we're, we're, we're getting to the point we've been, I think in the last three years, we've been, you know, 19 was probably our best year. Then we topped it again in 20, and even now 21 is going to be another great year. You know, when it's just my partner, Brent, and I, you know, we're a small, small group. But I think last year we had 11 projects under construction in different forms, if it's uh, a practice facility or bunker renovation or, you know, green construction or what you name it, waterfalls. We, we do all kinds of things. And this year we have, believe it or not, we've done, we will finish with 12 more projects this year under construction. So today, you know, when clients are calling, there's, you know, the days are the days are full. The calendar's full, so there is a little bit of a, a little bit of a delay getting to it. You know, I think I, I learned this from my father. Is, you know, in sales, what we do is we sell. We sell the service. Is that you just figure out how to keep selling and keep going and keeping the customers happy. So you just end up working more, and that's, I think Brent and I. That's our philosophy. That we end up just working more weekends and trying to still deliver the same. A level of service to these customers because we know if you don't do it somebody else will be in there to do that work and uh, we want to make sure that uh, they're good projects it's a day I think I you know believe it or not you know I have an interview this afternoon for for another project a nice renovation project and you know I tell some of these clubs I like to go in there and I want to find out who we're dealing with so it used to be that they were just interviewing us I'm actually kind of, on some of these, I'm interviewing them. 
because if we don't have a general consensus and we don't know what we want to be um, and there's a little bit of turmoil within the club or different people have personal agendas, sometimes those projects aren't very successful. So, you know, we are starting to take a look at them going, okay, we have to put our reputation out there. And if there's not enough money or the project isn't a good fit, or if it's a club that cycles through golf course architects, you know, I don't want to be on that carousel of, of where you're switching architects every three years or five years. You know, my goal is to build a long-term relationship so things can be consistent. In the end, we build the best golf course we can that it all blends together. And uh, so that, so we are being more selective from that standpoint. You have the question about opportunities. Um, guy, I have, we haven't done, you know, a full-blown new golf course in probably, I'd have to say probably nine years uh, the last time we did one. And uh, right now we have uh, two plans, you know, on, on the books here, on the drawing boards for, you know, a new core golf course that's all golf. Um, and then we have another one in different parts of the region that is a community golf course, um, you know, where you have a you know 600-acre track. And now they're starting to look at putting um, the golf back in with the community uh, just because it fits the market need. So we're looking at – and that's – that's exciting. So I see opportunities again for golf. Um, you know, they have to be right. They have to make financial sense. And, uh, but there is, there's hope that, um, you know, that things are going to be, uh, you know, staying on this path that we're on right now, trending up and, uh, and, and golf staying very popular, I think. As we discussed earlier, you're based in Kansas city and I'll be honest, we haven't had a lot of conversations about golf and, Kansas or your part of the Midwest very often on the Tartan Talks podcast series. Just how would you describe the terrain and the type of golf in the states where you primarily work? Well, have you, have you spent much time out here in Kansas, guys? Not as much as I probably should have. I've been there, I think, three times. Well, so the first, the first impression, everybody thinks Kansas is going to be flat. And Kansas is flat if you go out to western Kansas. On the eastern side of the state of Kansas and in Missouri where we're at in Kansas City, it's very hilly terrain. I mean, we have some major elevation changes. I mean, we have some golf holes you drop almost 80 to 100 feet from the tee down to the green. Um, you know, so there's there's quite a variety in the terrain and what you get. And then it's, you know, I'd say the Midwest here we're at, we're in Kansas City. The projects we deal with, we have a blend of, of the prairie. Uh, we have nice rolling terrain or kind of even flat areas with pure native grasses or in some sites. Uh, like what we're working out at Buffalo Dunes and Garden City, way out in western Kansas, to all pure sand. And then we come over, you know, to some areas where we have, like the Ozarks, where it's rocky, hilly terrain, solid woods, uh, where you have to kind of carve the, the golf holes in or deal with a lot of different vegetation from that standpoint. So I love it here in the Midwest. I mean, we it really tests you as an architect to be able to have to figure out the different sites uh, we're doing a project, um, you know, tall grass country club down in Wichita, Kansas. We're doing a, a major, uh, major renovation down there now. It was originally an Arthur Hills design, and there's only probably about five feet or ten feet of elevation change across the whole golf course. You know, so we're dealing with sites like that that are, 
you know, we have to work through that and solve drainage problems and, and clear out trees and open it up. And there's a lot of uh, native grasses that we're going to be reestablishing in there. So that's a, that's a fun site. And then to a project we're doing up here in Kansas City on Kansas City, Missouri, Oakwood Country Club, where I'm, you know, I brought in Ron Witness on this project as a, to, as a collaboration. To, he's here in Kansas City. And we're redoing the whole golf course. We started it last year. We're down to the last hole now. And um, and it was it's very hilly. That's what makes the golf course great is the terrain. Because you never have a level lie from that standpoint. And we carved a few new golf holes through the woods, solid trees. And the holes are beautiful. But when you look at it as a designer, you have to think about, okay, where are you putting the greens? You can't put them down in the holes. What's airflow? What's sunlight? Um, so there's all kinds of different elements you have to start taking a look at when you start designing these golf holes. But I like the variety of change. It's uh, it's different, and uh, I think it makes you a better architect when you have to deal with different soils and, and vegetation when you're trying to design these golf courses. A few weeks ago when we were preparing for this podcast, we had a conversation about tees and trying to get people – to play the right tees, uh, how can somebody such as yourself as a golf course architect put tees in the proper places for a club, and how many of your conversations these days with clubs and facilities are, are just about tees? Uh, the tee the tea conversation comes up all the time, Guy. We're, we're, we're dealing with this on a lot. We're, you know, we're going back and we're renovating um, you know, a, a project here in Kansas City, Falcon Ridge, um, Golf Club. It's something that Craig Schreiner and I did. We did that back in the in the mid nineties and you know, the tees were irregular shape. They didn't really point you down the, the alignment of the golf hole. And so what we're doing back now, what we're doing now is we're going back and squaring them up and we're going from like it where there are actually three physical tees, two to three physical tees. We're actually making five physical tees. And, and what's challenging is, is uh, the central golf link here. They've adopted, you know, the, the world handicap system. And, uh, you know, we have some forward tees on this hole, like the, I'll just say the six hole out there, Falcon Ridge, is there's been an existing tee, and it's a par five. And in order to accommodate this new handicap system, we would actually have to move the tee back probably 15 yards in order to make it a par five for the women. And, you know, so the club presents it to me, and I'm like, well, I'm not moving that tee back. Because um, right now it's an uphill par five. It's playing about, you know, just right around just under 400 yards. And these women can't get there anyway. So, you know, that's where then I have to step in and say, okay, you know, the USGA and everybody came out with initiatives to try to move it forward. You know, we can move it forward a little bit too much that it starts to mess up with the handicap system and how the courses are rated. And I think it's our job as architects to try to find that balance and what makes sense and, and try to bring into account, like the terrain. On the six hole out Stockton Ridge, I mean, it's going up 80 feet in elevation. So you have to, you can't just go by the distance. You have to also look at the elevation change. I think that's what we have to factor in as a golf course architect and try to, when we're looking at these forward tees, we need to have golf courses that have these forward tees. That allows the seniors to move forward. That allows the better players like my son and the young kids that are picking up the game to be on the back tees. And then 
guys my age that can play kind of the middle tee, the men's tee, what we consider, you know, what we grew up with. So we're seeing the multiple tees everywhere. Oakwood, we're doing it. Uh, we're doing it at a lot of facilities. The tall grass, we're adding more tees in there because it does make the golf course more enjoyable. You know, I think there's probably less of an emphasis on distance today. You know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago when we were doing a renovation project, guy, everybody wanted to be over 7,000 yards. Give me more distance. Give me, I want a longer golf course. You know, that hardly comes up today in our conversation. When we go to some of the clubs, Indian Hills and these others, they're old established clubs, and you only get 64, 6,500 yards out of that golf course. But that tee of how you position them and the distribution between the tees needs to be the same. We kind of work in our office. We start out with a percentage for each tee off the back tee, the overall distance, and then we have to fit it into the site of where a good spot would be to position that tee. So we take a lot of things into consideration when we're doing that. But we need to move it forward. You know, Bill Bergen with that long leaf tee initiative, I think, it's a, I think it's a great model for people to use. I think it's the tee should be positioned based upon skill set and to take all the gender out. And we need to keep encouraging seniors to move forward, to play up, and then even the better women to play back and play multiple tees. And uh, because that's always the struggles we see at the courses and the clubs. We like, they all want to play from the same tees. We're the, the men over the years, we just play to whatever tee we want. And I think that's where we need to get to a point where it needs to be strictly based upon skill set, how far you hit your drive, and that's where you need to be playing that tee from. So, so I think it, it, that's what we come across all the time. So we've learned a lot dealing with tees, and we're still learning when we start looking at these new handicap systems and, and how to really position those proper location for those tees. Speaking of seniors, I'm going to ask this question for myself, but I'm sure it applies to a lot of our listeners. Todd, any strategies for getting my 71-year-old stubborn father to play the right tees? Well, good luck with that. <laughs> I've dealt with that with my father. So my, you know, my dad is—he uh, still plays two to three times a year. We play all the time, and he plays at Prairie Highlands uh, Golf Club in Olathe, Kansas. And we have our design office out there in the clubhouse, and um, and what he's learned is he's finally got to the point where he's playing the most forward tee up. He tries to, when we play with him, he tries to come back to the white tee. There's a four tee system out there, and what he does is he can play that tee, but then he starts to overswing because he thinks he needs to overswing, and then all of a sudden he speeds up his golf swing, and then he starts hitting the ball bad, and he starts pulling him or pushing him or slicing them off, and we keep telling that dad, just just stay at the forward tee, just play there, because the short game is good enough. The guy, when he goes out and plays, and he has more fun doing it, when he comes back and you get him out of that, that distance that's just a little bit too far, then he, he struggles, and uh, and he can be competitive, and, and I think that's what's so much fun is when he can move up, and once your dad will finally move up, and have a good round and start beating you from that most forward tee, then he'll say, ah, okay, this can be fun. But there is there is an issue. We see it all the time. You have to have the physical tees. And in some way, you almost need to have that other forward tee up 
because the guys still don't want to go to that most forward tee. They they want to be one tee back, or they don't want to be all the way up. It's just a mindset. But I think if you can slowly convince them, and what I would do is I'd go up there and play with them. I think that's what we've done before. You play from the same tee, and then you slowly work your way back and uh, to see if you can have success from there. But, you know, my father, he's 78, and he'll still go out and shoot in the upper 70s and mid-80s. And then I'll play from my tees, and I'll shoot in the mid-80s. And even my son can go all the way back and play from the back tees and shoot in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, with my nephew and my brothers we and Brent, uh, we have a lot of fun. And it can be all competitive. We're all playing different tees. And that's, that's what's great about the game of golf. Well, I've tried to play the same tees as him, and he always has the line, no son of mine is going to play the forward tees. So, and also, his uh, two favorite sporting figures are Bobby Knight and Nick Saban, so I think that tells you what you need to know about my dad here. But on, on a serious note, Todd, how does having those multi-generational golf experiences with your son and your father help you with your job? Do you, do you see things from a variety of players' eyes just simply by playing with people in your own family? Oh, we do. We do. So my mom is, you know, my mom's 75, 76, and, you know, she, she picked up the game after we all went off to college, you know, my brother and two sisters. So, you know, and she'll shoot in, in the hundreds, and every once in a while she'll get down to the 90s. So when I'm designing, I'm looking at golf courses. I, I think a lot about my parents and how they play the game today because all their friends are in that same age, and they have the time to go out and play. And then they go to Arizona and they play down there in, in the winter times. And so I think we have to, when we design golf courses, we really have to think about all those people and what we do and, and how to make it a golf course that can accommodate everybody. You can still design a golf course that accommodates all levels of play, and that's what the multiple tees will do for you. But as a designer today, you know, I really try not, I like to give a lot of, alternate routes to the holes and leave, you know, maybe guard one side and leave the other side open so that they have a route around and they have a different avenue to run the ball onto the green and to make the golf course, golf course more playable. Um, you know, today it's, it's kind of interesting. You're seeing a lot of the trends where everything is bunkered all the way around the green complexes. You know, there's a lot of golf courses getting renovated with, a, a, a tremendous amount of sand and still today you know the sand doesn't bother me but for the seniors it really is a struggle for them to build a hit out of it to get into it and to physically just get around the golf courses you know um, so I think as a designer I, I pay attention to that because I think sometimes you know some architects we get caught up we can get caught up in the whole visual and this is what we need to do and we got to protect every angle into it and it's easy to get caught in that trap of trying to do that and I always try to take a step back and say all right what would my mom do here how would my father play this how do you get around we can still make the golf courses challenging for all levels you really have to think about it and uh, you know to me when I get to play with my father and my son and then my brother and my nephews and we go out and we play, we all get together and play a lot of golf together. My brother and I talk about it all the time. It is, it is, it's just a joy. It, we, we cherish it every time. We just value it. And I think our kids have, have grown up with their grandparents around 
And we, I think we have something very special that we can witness that and we can go out and they can all be competitive. And it's going to be something that our kids remember for a lifetime. They're able to play with their grandfather and they've seen him have a hole-in-one. They've been around. And those are going to be great memories for everybody. So that experience and those opportunities, um, I tell my wife all the time, you know, we're, we're in this small window of opportunity with my parents still in good health, and then our kids older now, they're all in their 20s, and to be able to enjoy this because y you never know when it's going to end, and we just want to take advantage of it uh, anytime we can. Last thing here, and this is going to be an awfully philosophical question, what is it about the game of golf and working in golf that leads to so many pinch-yourself moments like the one you're describing and like the ones I've had and like the ones all of our listeners have had? What is it about this game that these moments exist because of it? Wow, that, that's, that's a good question. I, I think it, it, it relates, it, it parallels life. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, in life, you know, our philosophy with my kids growing up all the time and my two girls and my son, you know, I think it's, it's about how do you respond to a certain situation? You know, if, if they get in trouble, you know, if they have something go wrong with academics or something, well, what do you need to do about that? And I think, I think that's what golf teaches you, and that's what life's about. How do you respond to certain situations? Hey, what do you do when you put it into the lake, and how do you come back? How do you, what's that recovery shot like? Well, I think that parallels life, and I think that's what the game teaches you, and you don't understand it, and then my son doesn't understand it today, and it took me a long time. You know, I didn't really get into golf. I was more interested in maintenance and everything, but once you start understanding that spirit of the game and golf and then how it parallels life and, and the challenges in life, the, the setbacks you have to deal with and then how you overcome that, you know, and then you have that success. You hit that shot. Like my son, he hit that albatross. My son can't get enough golf today. He is like he's wanting to play all the time. And actually we're going up to – Chicago this weekend with my daughter's boyfriend and, and her dad. We're going to go play Long Beach Country Club, and then we're actually going to go over to the Dunes Club up there, and we're going to go play some great golf. And those are just great memories, and they don't understand the parallels yet, but as you get older, my brother talked about life and golf, they're the same, and, and they teach you so much in how to deal with certain situations. So that's what I love about it. That's what I enjoy. And, and I think that's what keeps you coming back to it is you're never going to master it. And there's always a challenge. And, and I think that is life to tell you the truth. Well, Todd, that was a great answer. And this was a great podcast. Thank you so much for taking all this time to join me. I, I don't even know how you had t time to record a chart and talks podcast with 12 projects going on, but anyway, uh, this was a joy and let's do it again at some point. I really appreciate it, and you need to put it on your calendar and let me know when you want to come out to Kansas City, and and we can get around and play some of these uh, golf courses here that we've worked on, and uh, we can show you the Midwest. 